You are listening to Arena Craft, a podcast dedicated exclusively to Magic the Gathering Arena. Hello, my name is Arjuna. I am your host. Thank you for joining us and thank you for rejoining us if you are a returning listener. It is a pleasure to have you with us again every week, bringing you more exclusive Arena content. And I'm excited for this week. We have a returning guest with us, someone that I have always enjoyed talking with and whose perspective on the standard metagame I always respect. So we will get to that in a moment. But first, it's time for me to put on my content producer hat and ask you for your help. So you'll notice that people, whether it's podcasters, streamers, YouTube video creators, whoever it is who's making content, they're always asking you, please subscribe, like on Facebook or on Twitter, share my content, etc., etc., etc. And you hear this enough that it can start to kind of blend into the background or you just kind of take it for granted like, yeah, 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 this person wants me to do the thing and be a follower and, and all that kind of stuff. And It's not just like a vanity or it's not just I would like for you to continue taking in my content. Actually, there's a there's a social science behind it and it's called social proof. And so what happens is when you like something or when you follow someone or when you take any action whatsoever to kind of flag some video or some content as something that you like, it shows to everybody else in the world that this is worth considering. It's an endorsement. The internet has a self-reinforcing way about it. And so content which gets liked tends to get more liked. Uh, which contributes to the viral nature of the way that information spreads on the internet. And so today, you know, I haven't done very much of this on the show so far, but today I just wanted to ask you, my wonderful listeners, to just please give me a little help. And you can really do whatever is easiest for you, whether it's just clicking follow on Twitter, whether it is just hitting subscribe in your podcast app if you haven't done that already. You can follow me on YouTube. You can write me a review on iTunes. That would be really amazing to get some more of those going on. You can join our Discord community. That's a really excellent way to stay involved in the conversation, not just on the show. You can like the Facebook page. So I'm really not picky about which mana you choose, but I would just love, love, love it if you could show me your support in some small way through one of these gestures. It really does make a huge difference for the show. And frankly, it's stuff like that which allows a show like this to do more. So if you have a personality, let's say it's a an arena streamer or a magic pro or just somebody that you think is really awesome that you would love to see on the show, then those small little contributions like just helping to get a bit more of a Twitter following or helping to get a bigger Discord, stuff like that, can really make the difference when approaching people who have clout, basically. So please help me to help you to make this show awesome and to just make it what you would like it to be. Pledge drive is over. Now we can get back to the scheduled programming. So now it's time to bring a returning guest to the show. 
He is a fan favorite. He is a legend. He is the man, the myth, the YouTube video marathoner. Covert Go Blue! What is up, my man? <laughs> Yo, what's up? When I thought about all the things I could do with a Saturday night, absolutely nothing and no place better in the entire world than right here on this podcast with you, my man. Dude, that is what we love to hear. I could not feel more the same way. That was an awkward way of saying that I totally agree with you. <laughs> yeah, dude. So basically, this is what went down is like you and I, about a month ago, we had a discussion right at the very, very tippy top of the format, just kind of looking at Theros Beyond Death and how it was impacting Standard. We've fast forwarded a month, and so here we are looking at a bit more of a mature format. Worlds has happened, you have been playing Standard, I've been playing Standard, and I thought it would be really cool for us to like do a revisit, do a little recap of what has happened in the meantime, and to update our listeners with any thoughts that we have on the current meta game and basically just do like an assessment of what's working what's not working what do we think is going to be effective what have we been seeing on the ladder all of that kind of stuff absolutely there is nothing better than reflecting on all the things that i got insanely right <laughs> or wrong and uh, <laughs> i mean <laughs> it's a good time we know which side of the percentage you spend most of your time on am i right am i right oh uh, yeah Th that big wrestling intro got me in character so i feel like i have to have an insane amount of swagger but uh, <laughs> i i feel like i got i feel like this meta has been i feel like i've been pretty right i i feel like i understand this one and i think i was it's, it's not that i was wrong about the past couple metas it's just that it was too obvious to take any credit for because right. Oko was busted and Field of the Dead and Golos were busted and there wasn't much to say. But this one, this one's different and it's, it feels good. It feels good. I totally agree. Yeah, it, it feels like a balanced meta. I, I really enjoy the fact that I can go on the ladder and just as easily get stomped by Mono Red as by some build of Jeskai Fires, as by Blue White Control even occasionally a team list occasionally and <laughs> very uh, <laughs> occasionally and i've been seeing some fun rogue decks on the ladder too so i'm stoked to talk about that first of all i just wanted to kind of get like a quick check from you on worlds like i know that you did a worlds watching party in fact i think i i tuned in briefly to your stream on sunday and you were wearing those stunner shades and you were just yeah, getting into baby. it <laughs> so what did you think of that tournament and how did you feel about the way the matter shook out after that so worlds is it's a weird tournament right because it's 16 people and it's pretty easy for them to kind of game each other and that's all it's about is about leveling your these close rivals that you know like these people know each other pretty well for the most part with a few outliers so the deck choice and the card choices of worlds are really very specific to this tiny metagame that amounts to like an fnm in a small town 
You know what I mean? Totally. Where everybody knows each other and they all know that so-and-so is probably bringing this and that informs your card choices and your deck building decisions. And you have the club that kind of stuck to the middle with Jeskai Fires and Team Reclamation. And then you have the club that was like, we're going to go longer than them and bigger than them with Azorius Control going down to just one copy of Dream Trawler because we only need one way to win the game. We're just going to drain all the resources from everybody else because we know what they're playing. So we can wait as long as it takes to get our one Dream Trawler. And then you have the club who was like, well, we're going under all that. You guys are trying to get bigger. We're going to smash you with these red lists that don't even kill anything. They, they don't even have shock. They, they're just all creatures. Just You're just a, all attacking creatures to make Embercleave work. And that that little FNM with a world championship at the end is so unique because it's this micro meta that becomes the macro meta, at least for a little while, because people see the world's lists and they see that's what the best players, our heroes of the game are playing, and we're going to copy it. And guess what? <laughs> it's it's not the same little FNM anymore. It's, the, it's, it's a really wide ladder out here, and people... Sometimes they get a wake-up call that they're not the world champion or that they think they're unlucky, but really they're playing decks that are tuned for a very specific place in a very wide place. And that's why the coverage I've actually got in the background right now of DreamHack Anaheim that's on right now, which totally. is a standard tournament, is so much different from Worlds. It's kind of amazing Yeah. Um, as far as the builds. But the decks themselves are pretty locked up. Like, Mono Red got validated at Worlds. You know what that means? Everybody is going to play everywhere. It. I was just saying, man, it's like... <laughs> oh, my God. The moment there's even the faintest hint that Mono Red might be good, it's just like 50% of the ladder meta game, you know? Yep, yep. Whereas a lot of the card choices at Worlds were informed by Team Reclamation and Azorius Control were thought to be the two big decks going in. Right. Now it's like every card position in my deck has to be like well mono red <laughs> is this card bad against mono red i probably shouldn't play it <laughs> i probably should have one copy at the most it's like you you take each individual card in your deck and you hold it up next to embercleave and you're like hmm <laughs> yeah does it cost four mana will i lose when embercleave is cast after i play this card yeah right? it's kind of gross in that way you're like can i either play this before turn four or have this in response to them playing embercleave on turn four and you know if the answer to either of those questions is no <laughs> out, out of the deck right yes it's it's a painful reality yeah yeah <laughs> it really is you know, so one thing that I like about this, though, is that Oko Winter was a thing, and we don't have to dredge all of that up either. But, or, or um, I think Field of the Dead is a really great example. When a deck like that is, is really good and you're seeing it everywhere, it kind of sucks because how do you really attack a deck like that? And I'm not saying that you can't do it at all, but, you know, sometimes it, you have to warp your deck a bit and it really restricts your options. And one of the things that I like about a deck like Mono Red being really prevalent is that there are plenty of ways to attack this deck and... There are a number of, of cards that can kind of embarrass it. And there are pretty decent strategies in a lot of the big archetypes, which will help you in that matchup. So it's one of the things I actually like about the prevalence of Mono Red is that it's definitely not unbeatable. 
And I don't even necessarily think that it has like a super warping effect on the meta the way some of these other really, really strong decks have been. So I, I like to see that. The people are going to need to hold you to this now. Like you, you dangled a carrot. You, you've got to, <laughs> you got to say some stuff about what beats mono red because let me open my Twitter DM really quick. I think I could read this verbatim. I get this same message just about every day. Hey, I like your content. What is a deck that will never lose to mono red? Please help. Need help now. <laughs> okay, now we have that challenging word "never," right? <laughs> That's... Yeah. Uh, my reply always starts with "Nothing's going to beat red eighty percent of the time." The deck really has very few bad matchups because it will always punish a mistake, right? Well, and so that's the thing about red, right? Is that like, no matter how good your deck is, if they get that dream curve of, you know, like one drop, like, like that's a deck that can be casting Embercleave on turn three, right? So like if someone's Embercleaving you on the play on turn three, it's, it's pretty hard to deal with that. But that's just kind of the world that we live in when you face a deck like that. And you just have to hope, you know, I mean, you just have to scoop to those games sometimes, right? So yeah, so this was one of, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought this up because this is one of the first things on my mind as I was jumping into the THB standard. Like this, this is basically what I did was I played some standard at the beginning of the format and then I decided that I wanted to complete my collection. So I spent about two weeks like feverishly drafting and got rare complete and, you know, decent way towards mythic complete. So now I feel like I have just about all the cards I need to play the standard. So then I, I jumped back into standard and I've been playing that for a couple of weeks. And this was like the first question on my mind was how to deal with mono red because I kept encountering it on the ladder. I kept getting stomped by it. And I have been feeling like at first I was feeling kind of crummy about the matchup. Like I, I was feeling like a lot of the stuff that I was trying wasn't working very well. But I have learned that there are like a number of ways that you can attack this deck, which can actually be pretty effective. There's a reason why the Azorius control has been doing so well. And I think one of, one of the reasons for that is that it actually can have a very good matchup against red. So. I've been playing a lot of Azorius. It's the deck that I've had the most consistent wins with. And if you can get your glass caskets down at the right time, especially, you know, if you play around Annex, I think that's a huge part of having success against the red deck. Uh, I mean, no matter who you are, but especially if you're running sweepers, I've found that just like being very, very aggressive with maybe like glass casketing that turn to play like trying to control the board a little bit before the sweeper and trying to sandbag at least some kind of removal for annex before I cast my sweeper. And I find that that deck, if you're able to apply even like a moderate amount of interference right at the beginning of the game, then you drastically improve your chances of, of actually catching up to them and eventually overpowering them. I will say that it's it's pretty tough like if your deck doesn't run specifically deafening clarion or if you're not jamming four oros in your deck or if you don't have like three or four glass caskets in your list then I think it can get a lot harder to feel like really confident that you can tackle that matchup. Mm -hmm. Without question, without question. Yeah, so those are kind of some of the initial thoughts that I've had off the top of the dome. I Like, for example, I have found that sometimes when you're playing against them, like just going Arboreal Grazer into Oro 
can be like pretty tough for the red deck to to race mm -hmm. and especially once you get that like six six oro down on the battlefield you've already gained six life from it it's like that can be a pretty hard brick wall for them to get through so that sounds like Simic. How do you handle it when they set up Annex into Embercleave? Do you run an interaction or do you try to kill them prior to this actually working on you? Yeah, I mean, that that is tough. And I think it's one of the reasons why Simic, like just Simic, I think has been kind of a hard sell in this format because outside of something like Brazen Borrower, it can be pretty difficult. And borrower is just delaying the problem. That's the other thing. Right. It's like, if you're not closing the door, right. then eventually Annex and his Embercleave are just more than even all your powerful stuff can deal with. I totally agree, yeah. And so I think it's it's one of the reasons, you know, we can just kind of jump into this right now, but it's one of the reasons why I think just straight Simic has been kind of drying up in this meta game is that you just don't quite, you don't have enough definitive answers for big problems like Dream Trawler, like Anax. A lot of these, these board states that you find yourself in, in this format, you really need answers. Like you actually need to be able to get stuff off the field. Mm -hmm. That's why, you know, I'm seeing some people move into Bant, for example, because they want Elspeth conquers death or like people are moving into maybe they're playing salt eye so that they can get some black going on to maybe run a ritual of soot or, or some more spot targeted spot removal in the cheaper end of the spectrum so that's something that i've kind of been noticing is people moving into these three color pies and definitely moving into either white or black to add like a little bit more of a controlling edge to their deck this is something that i often notice like you'll get x amount of time into a meta game maybe it's like a month i feel like in the last last iteration it was a little over a month where we start seeing people move from these two color pairs into three color pairs so like the classic example was you had all of these simic decks playing oko and you know wicked wolf and that whole package and then the second iteration of that matter was a lot of people playing Saltai because they needed some of those more like direct removal, controlling kind of answers to the meta game. Yeah, when the meta identifies its targets, then you know what you need from another color. And you didn't know that before. Right, exactly. And I think it's interesting. This is like a thing that we see is that like in the beginning of a format, we'll just see some very proactive game plans. So people have this like very streamlined idea of how they're building their decks and they have these very clear archetypes. And then you get these more reactive plans where someone's like, okay, I'm going to take 80% of this proactive package and then I'm just going to jam in these answers, right? So that I can smooth out my matchups against these certain problematic decks and also just like make my sideboard better. So that's something that I've been seeing more on the ladder is like I'm seeing instead of people just playing Simic, now they're playing Bant. Or yeah, now they're playing Saltai. I've been seeing both of those. I've also been seeing people break out of Azorius control into esper control because again that wanting to add that extra black to help them maybe get an edge in the mirror right maybe they want to run some hand disruption or you know you might even throw in something spicy like a liliana to try to combat your opponents do you think do you think that blue white needs the help that that that's like the one deck where i look at the pile and i'm like 
what do I need to solve, really? Yeah. Right? What What do I actually need to solve? Hand hate? I could run more mystical disputes. I could run more Dovin's vetoes instead. Uh, but yeah, what do you do? You, do you really think that's necessary? So th- this has been a big question on my mind, and I think a lot of people have been asking themselves that question. So, like for example, I've watched Andrea Mangucci playing his Esperona deck, Esper One, right as he does. Just about every week. As he is wont to do, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep. And he made some good points around that deck, which is that he said that he felt like tapping out was a strong thing to be doing in the mirror. He said that because people are resolving their Teferi's, resolving Elspeth Conker's death, maybe even resolving their dream trawler. These are all strong, proactive, on my turn things that people are doing. And so he was saying, if my opponent's control deck is taking these turns off to tap out, then if I just run like a completely tap out deck, I'm basically going to get an edge against them because my plan is going to be a bit more proactive than their plan is. And that's kind of his rationale for wanting to do that. But I kind of agree with you. I don't necessarily know that it plays out that way. So a lot of people have been saying that Esper is not as consistent as Azorius and and that Azorius is already powerful enough, so you shouldn't really have to dip into it. My initial take from just playing a lot of Azorius controllers, I think I would agree with that assessment. You know, I've played against plenty, like for example, I've played Azorius control against plenty of hand disruption strategies, and I have not found them particularly effective against me. Maybe I was just getting lucky in my top decks, but I think that hand disruption specifically is not card advantage, and I think one of the benefits of an Azorius deck is that in the long game, you get an incredible amount of card advantage. So it's like, you know, you cast an Agonizing Remorse and you yanked my Dream Trawler, but then next turn I resolved a Teferi and then I got another card. Or this game went to turn 10 and I used my Castle Vantress and I scryed away two bad cards. Or I used my Omen of the Sea. And so the white, the the blue-white deck just has so much card advantage. And so even if you're managing to remove their threats, if you're not keeping up with the card advantage, they're still going to run you over eventually. Yeah, their ability to draw the right card is impressive. I'll say this for the Esper fans out there. The Esper deck I found... I found the most success with is one that changed the strategy. If you're trying to take your blue-white control deck and cut, say, I don't know, Bertha Militus or something and put in Thought Erasure and call that an Esper deck, I think you're I think you're missing out on what you could be doing because you just kind of made your mana base worse and you made your deck even probably more tempo negative in that way against the aggro decks. And you're hoping to win a matchup against people who are really good at drawing the right cards with all their scry action in the blue-white mirror. So if I'm going to add the color, I want to lean into things that make the color better. Like the Esper deck I've had the most success with is one I call Esper Exile Super Friends. It's on the YouTube. It has 14 Planeswalkers. It has four Interplanar Beacons and four Oath of Kayas. It has a ton of life game for the red matchup. It just it, t- it has no counter spells. It taps out every turn to play cards that are threatening. And uh, with the Planeswalker synergy in Elspeth Conquered's Death, in Oath of Kaya, in Interplanar Beacon, you just kind of get more of a synergistic package that you can't really do well with just blue-white. 
because Ashiok is a planeswalker and that can end the game right. as opposed to Teferi and Narset, which stall the game. So yeah, like take it take it further with these with these Esper lists. Do something that Blue White can't do. Uh, and I mean more than hate the hand. More than just hand hate. Do do some be more threatening. Be more proactive. Be more synergistic. Just make a make something stronger if you're going to add the color that's that's my recommendation i couldn't agree more and and if you look at like you said a lot of these cards that include black in in the color combo like atris for example or like ashiok they really do have a more proactive plan built into them casting a a three two menace that draws you more cards that's not a particularly controlling card. I mean, sure, it's a creature that gives you card advantage, but that card is designed to turn sideways as well. And so if you just plant your flag and you say, I'm going to be the aggressor, I'm going to be the person trying to end the game here, I'm going to have like more smash your face in and less wait to see what you're going to do kind of a plan. I agree that that's kind of how you need to be running it. Because I really just don't think that you can out-control Azorius Control. Like, I think they've really got the market cornered on the control side of the game. Yeah, they can be a tap-out deck if they want to. They can be fully reactive if they want to. I mean, you're you're playing against versions that have four vetoes and four mystical disputes and some amount of Aether Gust if you're playing green or red after sideboarding. Like, they... They only tap mana if it's to wreck you. You know what I mean? <laughs> On their turn. They'll play Teferi if they want to. They'll play Dream Trawler when they want to. But they can be as reactive as they need to be. So you just can't play the same game. You can't play, I'm going to wait till I have Thought Erasure and, I don't know, a Teferi Time Raveler. And that will beat them. Because you can take their veto. And then they're just going to play Elspeth Conqueror's Death. And you don't have a Teferi Time Raveler. And they have a ticking Planeswalker Bomb. Exactly. And the other thing that I'm thinking about is stuff like you really can't be playing Birth of Miletus in an Esper deck. And so nope. cards like that are, are really, they kind of help to smooth out and position and enhance Azorius as a control deck, as a deck which has blockers, which is making the game go long, which is getting that kind of card advantage even right from the beginning of the game. And yet you, you just can't afford to be running cards like that in the Esper deck. So you you just do have to be doing more proactive things with your early plays, I think. Yeah, I agree. You touched on Bant really quickly. What do you think people are... Yeah, let's let's go into that. Yeah, I wanted to ask what you think people are into basically Simic Splash White. Where does that make you better? So, okay, I'm glad that you bring this up because I have had some opinions on this. So the, these various pros have been talking about Bant, kind of hinting about it. So Crokies, for example, is currently number two Mythic running his Bant deck. Brad Nelson has been playing a version of Bant with some success. And to be honest, when I look at all of these Bant decks, I'm like, this is Bant.pile. I'm reading through these deck lists and I'm like, okay, so the cogent plan is just Bant good stuff, I guess. I'm not really seeing like a narrative Yeah. You know, and and so it's not that I don't think that these decks couldn't be good. But in some ways, I feel like it's almost like someone kind of sleeved up 60 cards that they thought were just going to be generally good against the meta game and hope to get there. For the listeners out there, I'm looking at a Crokey's list that has two Grazer, two Mystical Dispute, four Growth Spiral, 
four Knight of Autumn, three Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath, a Narset, one Narset, four Teferi Time Ravelers, two Shatter the Sky, one Tamio, Collector of Tales, one Cavalier of Thorns, three Elspeth Conquers Death, three Nyssa, who shakes the frickin' world, and two Hydroid Crasis and a pile of mana. Like, I mean... <laughs> it's a gross spiral night of autumn deck you know right it's like the only four of he's running right i mean okay i'm not gonna argue with croquis i mean the guy is at the top of mythic for a reason right so clearly this is doing something for him and i think one of the nice things about Bant is that you do have access to a, a pretty reasonable sideboard and i'm sure he's really leveraging that in his postboard games mm-hmm. but I don't think I've ever seen a deck ever that runs two Arboreal Grazer, two Mystical Dispute, one Narset, one Cavalier of Thorns. It's like, it's so random. You know what I mean? I'll say he's doing a good job of getting away from cards that would make him worse when he's shattering his own sky. Mm, right. Because it, you don't want Paradise Druid. You want cards that put lands onto the battlefield. You don't want cards that are creatures that make mana that would die in that situation. The Narset is, oh man, (laughs) I'm just so afraid it's going to whiff. And I I guess it's a one of, and it's part of a prison effect. It must be part of a long game against Teamer Reclamation is kind of what I smell here. Yeah, all the control decks really, you know, it's like, He's just trying to have something to dig towards. You know, I think that works, but it's just kind of interesting to see a deck which is like this, it's like a weird amalgamation of a control deck and a mid-range deck and a ramp deck. Yeah. And I can see certain scenarios in which that's super powerful. Like, for example, ramping yourself into an Elspeth Conquer's death in the right game could be really backbreaking. Oh, I, I think I got it. I think I know exactly what this is doing. All right, lay it on me. So he's the most popular magic streamer right now, right? 2,000 viewers a day. Oh, I see where you're going so, with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. If somebody's sniping him, they have no idea what he's about to draw. Yep, yep. <laughs> they can't play around at all. I also weather the some amount of disinformation campaign going on here, too. <laughs> yep, they can't play around all of it. <laughs> And Brad Nelson didn't release his list, so I'd be curious to know what he's running as well. But... That's just kind of my take on this deck is that I think if you're running Bant in this matter, unless someone comes out with a more cogent deck list, I think it's mostly a pile strategy. And sometimes pile gets there, you know? I mean, sometimes the cards are just, you draw the right combination of cards, you you do the right amount of gotchas, and you can just get there. And I mean, there are so many games where like, you're just going to have that classic Arboreal Grazer into Oro into Nyssa draw, and that's just pretty freaking hard to deal with. But if it were me and I was running Bant, I would definitely be trying to come up with a bit more of a cogent narrative for what my deck was ideally trying to do and how it was ideally going to close the game out. Yeah, I'd love to. I'm excited to play this a little bit because there is definitely some tuning and um, a lot of the listeners probably know, but in case you don't know, I'm, I'm best of one guy. There's something, I don't know, maybe that's a whole conversation, but I actually love best of one and I see it as a very challenging format because it's completely unforgiving. So taking the pile strategy and making it a best of one deck is always, 
it's always interesting to find the cards that you can lean on and the cards you just can't afford. So when I see something like this, the the gears start spinning for what the best of one version would look like. And that's what gets me excited, to be honest. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that because I'm actually a frequent best of one gamer as well. And a lot of people talk about best of three being better for laddering. But I actually, when I'm playing for the purpose of climbing the ladder, I actually really enjoy doing best of one. I'm not running mono red, by the way, but I do enjoy the strategy of like picking a strong out the gate best of one deck and just kind of going for it and trying to get there. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. And I, you know, I found that to be like a fairly good way to climb the ladder and like once I get higher up into a tier that I want to be at then I'll kind of switch back over to best of three and try to get a little bit more nitty-gritty in my matchups I think best of one is gas and frankly I think that there are like a surprising number of people out there in arena who prefer best of one I think that that's true Wizards once upon a time posted a stat that like 97% of the games in arena that com- were completed were best of one. It's an outdated stat. Okay. Okay. And there's an, a lot of issues with it. Mostly that you had to like find the quote unquote traditional queue back then. Right. And it wasn't very obvious how to even play best of three, but wizards obviously have some data that makes them think that best of one is like, is worth supporting more so than say what they're doing with brawl. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but be careful. You you kind of came out on this podcast as a best of one gamer. Um, I will tell you, you'll you'll have to deal with the um best of three fans throwing it in your face for a while. I deal with it every day on YouTube. They they are very passionate about telling you what real magic is <laughs> and that it involves seventy-five cards, not a hundred cards, and not sixty cards, you know. You know, this, this is the moment where I date myself a little bit and say, I was playing in 1994. You kids get off my lawn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me too. Right. Me too. <laughs> but I, I think it, I think it speaks to my personality. And maybe there are some people out there who can identify with this is that I, I like trying to accomplish the most with the least. Mm, mm-hmm. Like in my side job, I built a multi-million dollar company with four people and no brick and mortar location you know it's like that so building up making more the most out of as little as possible like managing resources that way speaks to me so when i'm told to find the perfect 60 that is more fun for me than finding a great 75 Mm. and having all these plans i like having a deck with all the plans that i can reasonably incorporate into one deck box you know what i mean that's that's what I'm going for. And it, it's, and I think that there are more people like that than people realize. And they don't realize it's not a matter of we don't know how to sideboard or that we're lazy. It's like, I, I enjoy this. Yeah. I, I really enjoy this puzzle. It, it is. It's a different kind of puzzle. And I've been getting back into Limited lately. I was kind of out of it for a while because I didn't really like Eldraine Limited. But I think it's really telling that the ranked ladder in Limited on Arena is best of one. So it really is like a key strategy that you have to incorporate if you want to rank in Limited on Arena. And I think that that just lends credence to the idea that this is an important game mode. It's here to stay. And quite frankly, a lot of us who maybe 
want to get in a couple games in 20 minutes or you know in between things or i want to get in a couple games before bed or whatever best of one is really great for that and so they can both coexist happily i play them both i think they both make me better as a magic player for having had the experience yeah i just completed two best of one games during your monologue so uh, <laughs> it has a lot of uses but win rate <laughs> but before yeah before we go too far and lose the best of three gamers uh anything to wrap up on the bant ramp thing what do you yeah, think? yeah bant ramp call me a skeptic you're a skeptic okay so this is what i think about bant ramp or, or just bant in general i think that this is a strategy is probably going to reward the more highly skilled gamers out there I think, and and really any of these three color combos are, I think, in general, reward more experienced, more pro-level players who really know how to leverage the options. And of course, people who know how to build their mana bases to support it properly, which is not easy, by the way. Building a a three-color mana base is not just as simple as like 12 Shocklands, 12 Temples, Couple of Fable Passage, YOLO, Let's Go kind of a thing. Like you've you've really got to think very, very carefully about how you do that. So I I think that it's going to reward people who have that kind of experience. Yeah, I'm I'm going to say like until I can see a more cogent game plan, I don't see any of these bant decks having a really consistent performance in the meta game. Okay, quick pivot then. How about this three-color deck that's been making some waves? Uh, the Teamer Clover deck. I've been seeing a lot of coverage on this this weekend on DreamHack. Like, yeah. it, it seems to be rolling right now. Okay, so quick plug. The second episode of this show that I ever recorded was with the author of this deck, Aaron Gertler, who put together Team of Clover. His name's Little Beep in Arena. And this guy is a beast, man. He is also the person who put together... The or I should say he kind of refined and popularized the mass manipulation Simic ramp deck, which was going around probably about a year ago, which put him at number one on the ladder. So yeah, this guy's a total beast. And I was actually playing a lot of the Tima Clover deck in the previous, like before Theros Beyond Death was released. This deck is very, very potent. And I think it's really interesting that it's seeing in a special comeback in this meta. So I'm curious your thoughts on this. I mean, okay, first of all, have you spent much time playing this deck? I've spent a little bit of time playing this deck and not a lot in the new meta. I've played against it an obscene amount of time. And I don't mean an obscene amount of encounters with different people playing the deck. I mean, I encounter that one person in 20 or 30 that is playing it, and we have a nice hour together to get to know each other. Which, which (laughs) I'll tell you, is one of the reasons I stopped playing the deck, because it was one of these decks where I was like, I feel like I'm 55 to 60% to win most of my matches if I'm willing to have an aneurysm for two hours, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you like migraine? <laughs> exactly. So the, the, the deck is certainly powerful. And there's a weird thing where I think it was worse against decks like Rakdos Knights that played things like Rotting Regisaur that it could only really answer with a Brazen Borrower and things like that. But I think it's better against Mono Red because 
Lucky Clover and a Bone Crusher Giant just wipes them. And it can also interact with Embercleave reasonably because it still has the borrowers. It doesn't have to waste them on a Regis or just stay alive. Like there's stuff like that going on. And it runs Edgewall Innkeeper, which if you don't have cheap removal in your deck, just starts running away with the game very early. The Fay of Wishes makes you play a seven, your full 75 in any given game. And I, what I see the most common with this deck, the people I play against, their issues, and I think what brings the deck up short for most people who have tested it and most people who are trying to play it, is they don't know how to close. Yeah. Right? You get into this point where you have all this value. How do you end the game? And I think that the difference between the players who are having obscene success with this and the naysayers who are saying, I tried it, it wasn't great, or it doesn't look that great. I think the people who know this deck well know how to close. Yeah, They know how to finish the game from their advantage position. Because there's a lot of great engines in Standard right now that will get you to an advantage, but don't win you the game. I can't tell you how many times I've decked Elementals or some Thassa Blink deck or something like that because they just generate all this advantage but don't win the game. So... That's the that I think is the the piece of teamer clover that you have to take the time to master when you're going to play the deck. Yeah, and here's the trickiest thing about clover is that the way that you play the deck is very very different depending on what you draw. So I think that that's one of the things that will make a lot of people put the deck down after playing it at first. Like they'll play a couple of matches and. In one game, they'll draw three clovers and they'll get this insane value and they'll just wrath their opponent's board and just completely dominate the game. And then in the next game, they won't see any clovers and they're playing this kind of like mid-range creature kind of board presence game. And I think it can just be very, very confusing like when you look at your opening hand in the deck to build a a very cogent narrative around what you're going to do, especially as you highlighted the fact that it's a deck that relies so much on grabbing from its sideboard. And I read an article, and I'm going to forget the name of the gentleman who wrote this, so I apologize, but he was talking about bringing team a clover to dream hack and one of the things that he was talking about was saying how a decision you frequently have to make when you're playing this deck is you f- you're frequently wishing for two cards from your sideboard <laughs> on turn four uh-huh and a lot of people and, and aaron gertler has actually talked about this too a lot of people will be in a situation they'll be like this is the only good play i can make this turn and i have no idea what to get And so they go into their sideboard and they're like, oh, uh, Chandra six, that's a good card. Let's just nab that. Right. Oh my God. You know, and maybe, oh, maybe I'll get like an expansion and explosion because that's just another powerful card that might help me out later on in the game. And Chandra can't be countered. It must be the best card against blue white control, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. So they'll kind of make these dubious proactive plays, grabbing what are essentially reactive cards from their sideboard that end up being the wrong cards. So there are so many decision points in this game and it really taxes your your knowledge of the deeper understanding of all of the things that your deck can do and what your deck is ideally sh- should be doing in any given matchup. So I think that's where a lot of people stumble and it can just be quite frankly difficult to find the line. Like a lot of times when you're playing that deck, the correct line to win is something like, 
I need to cast an escape to the wild so I can find another clover so I can get two wishes from my sideboard so I can grab fling and something else so that I can deal my opponent, you know, 24 damage in one turn, right? Which if you've been playing the deck a lot, you kind of get used to these play patterns. But when you're, when you're newer with it, it can be very, very difficult to figure out because that's, that could be like a three, four, five turn arc where you really get to execute on that plan. Yeah. The amount of times I've seen somebody use their Fey of Wishes to get a plain-wide celebration and return, like, three or four Edgewall Innkeepers to their hand, for example. You know, that it, when they already have a handful of cards and, like, you know, 20 cards in their deck. Yeah. It's, yeah, that, that's just, that's an extreme example, but this has happened to me multiple times. <laughs> yeah, so it, it just, it plays a lot of these very powerful cards like that. I mean, plain-wide celebration, talk about a skill-testing card. I think as someone who's cast that card a lot, both in the Fires matchup and in the Tima deck, that is not an easy card to play properly. And mm-hmm. I would say, you know, 90% of the games I've resolved it, I'll look back and think, nah, I really should have chosen that other mode. Or I didn't need to gain all that life. Or I actually should have made one of those 2-2 two, two tokens. So yeah, it, it, it's a very skill-testing deck, but I think it rewards it rewards the practice that you put into it. Now, one of the reasons I decided to stop playing that deck was that I just got very, very tired of, I think it's a deck where you often spend the entire game feeling like you're losing. And then maybe you manage to string together a win at the end. That makes sense. I mean, and it is just decision fatigue, to be honest. If every one of your, like almost every card is a split card, you're drawing multiple cards a turn, which makes you reevaluate everything. Uh, it's an exhausting deck to play. Yeah. If you're not used to that. And like you said, it, it doesn't have like a readily presenting closing plan, right? So I think sometimes it gets tiring to just figure out, okay, how am I going to win this game? How am I going to win this game? How do you feel about how this is positioned in the meta? And especially, how have you felt watching any matches with it at DreamHack so far? It's definitely a specialist deck. You already alluded to that it pays off your practice. Um, I'm still... I'm I'm skeptical of matchups with Embercleave, but it's proving itself there. And not having played this specific build against this version of Red myself, it's hard for me to comment on Here's the thing right now. Um, I will be the first one to tell you. I will come up with my opinions. I also don't argue too much with results. If if you walk into DreamHack, put up great records, you win GPs, it's like your your opinion carries more weight than mine automatically. I personally just... This, this deck annoys me. <laughs> <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? I'm never going to put in that many reps with it. I'm excited by its existence. I'm also a little bit like... I'm kind of amazed. It doesn't really have new cards except for some one-ofs in the sideboard, right? right? It's an engine that pre-existed and is just kind of continuing to do its thing. It was an option before. The pros didn't play it. It's an option now. The pros didn't play it. I want to know why people testing for Worlds didn't play it. You know, I'm very curious. They played Teamer Reclamation. This is a deck that showed a lot of power, showed a lot of promise, but also had some very known holes. And people could have like told you a lot of the flaws of Teamer Reclamation going in. Right. I don't know how many people could tell you the flaws in Teamer Clover, but they still don't play it. Um, I will say this, and this was pointed out by Martin Yuza uh, on coverage today for DreamHack. 
it's not a deck that's vulnerable to Elspeth Conquers. No. <laughs> it's, it's key cards do not care. Lucky Clover does not care. And there aren't that many ways to get just, just get rid of Lucky Clover right now. Right. Especially when Blue White leans on Elspeth Conquers Death. So it's got a place. I think its best place is just driving a, a Blue White mage like me insane with so much going on and making it take an hour to win. I imagine that matchup in particular is... If not super favorable, then at least definitely very doable for the teamer because mm-hmm. it's it really is such a hard strategy for a control deck to answer. I mean, when they're doubling their spells and you can only counter one of them, that's a really tough place for a control deck to be. Now, on the other side, though, one of the things that the teamer deck struggles the most with is dealing with difficult threats. And I imagine that a dream trawler is a nightmare for that deck to deal with. I think in order to beat one of those, you would probably have to do something ridiculous like try to get two Brazen Borrowers down to block it or maybe just hope that you can kill them with some big damage turn before they clock you too many times with it. That has to be it, right? You have to set up and basically deal some kind of a knockout blow when they tap a ton of their mana for the Dream Trawler, right? right. That has to be. Right, exactly. So, but that was something, that was one of my critiques of the deck historically playing it was that it can really struggle to answer threats from your opponent in a way that a lot of other decks, other decks don't. And having to do something awkward like wish for two lava coils out of your sideboard just to take down something big feels really, really bad. So <laughs> I think it's a deck that can really struggle to just deal with an opponent's Oro. I remember feeling like the cat oven deck could sometimes just go way over the top of you because you couldn't close the game fast enough against them. Yeah, that deck's been on the back burner as well, but was the last undefeated deck at DreamHack today was Jun Food. Yeah, I mean, we have definitely not seen the last of that deck. I think some people scoffed at Canister a little bit for bringing it to Worlds. And I would agree that I don't think it was a great match for that particular meta at that tournament, but I think just running it in general on the ladder, it would not surprise me if that deck can still take you all the way to number one. There are two people I've heard talk about that deck. Canister is one and loves the blue-white matchup. So similar to Team or Clover, if you... I've talked about this before, but it's like check your triggers when laddering. Are you triggered by mono red or are you triggered by blue white? <laughs> Here are options that beat blue white. Here are options that beat mono red. Go down the menu. <laughs> Take your choice, right? Yep. What do you hate now? Here are some here are some decks. <laughs> yep. So I'm I'm glad that you're talking about some other decks on the ladder. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you is what have you been enjoying playing and what have you been seeing success with? Sure. So one of the, this is going to be a little shameless, but one of the things that my patrons, I have a Patreon, if you like supporting the YouTube channel and the content, you can check it out. It's Covert Go Blue. You know, it's like Patreon slash Covert Go Blue. But at the $5 tier and higher, my patrons can send me decks and I will review them. And there's also a tier there for if you want your deck played in a video. And I got sent a deck and it was a Boros like it was it was it was a meme to be honest it was it was a boros like deck with what is that red retributive wand where it's destroyed it deals five damage to things oh that's going deep man yeah and planar cleansing right (laughs) so 
it's like, okay, it was, it was a total meme. And I also ask my patrons, you know, tell me your goals. Tell me what you want from this deck. Because if you're just trying to blow up four wands and 20 somebody, I'm, I mean, there's, if that's all you want in life, then I'm not going to take the wand out. But if you want a competitive deck, cause you think there's something here, I'm probably going to take the wand out and steer you in that direction. So this person wanted kind of a competitive take on the deck, and I brewed up a Boros control deck after playing with it for a while. And it's actually, I think, really good. It has a ton of card advantage. The red matchup is fantastic. The blue-white matchup is difficult. The fires matchup is really tough. But, you know, this is something I've been playing around with in Platinum and having a good time with. I wrote about it on CoolStuffInc.com. There's an article. And it's basically a lot of two-for-ones in the red and white colors with cards like for Elspeth Conquers Death. That is kind of your main interaction piece, and getting something back with it is key. There's Gideon Blackblade, and there's Shatter the Sky. So if you haven't done this, you can have your Gideon out, and when you cast Shatter the Sky, you draw a card. And it doesn't oh, and it's indestructible. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. Yep. Gideon can also make your wall from Birth of Melitus or your giant killer or your bone crusher giant indestructible as well. So they survive the shatter of the sky. Very nice, very nice. And the action keeps going. The deck has some dead cards in certain matchups, so Thrill of Possibility is in it, along with Ox of Agonis. So <laughs> the card advantage in the late game is to like cast Ox with Escape or keep getting it back with Elspeth Conquers Death and just keep the cards coming and coming and coming. There's also some Cavalier Flame to win sort of out of nowhere. You drop it with the last trigger from Elspeth Conquer's Death on the stack. If you set your stops, you can cast Thrill of Possibility, discard your Cavalier Flame, animate it with Elspeth Conquer's Death, and <laughs> pump it up and win. <laughs> oh, you wily, wily coyote. That's fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's a really fun. It's It's a really fun list with a really good red matchup, which in best of one, that's important and um, i assume that you're running deafening clarion actually cut them oh you did okay i was too good against red it was too good too good you you wanted to up the difficulty a little bit i wanted scorching dragon fire because i need to exile certain threats and i need to hit planeswalkers when i need to hit planeswalkers yeah and also of course dream trawler is a big problem so having giant killer instead of something like deafening clarion just this persistent threat that sits there and makes them tap it. It's really funny how often the Dream Trawler deck gets into this place where they have their Dream Trawler and they have Shatter the Sky in hand. So if you have a creature that pairs off with to either threaten blocking the Dream Trawler or can keep tapping it like Giant Killer, then they don't want to cast the Shatter and kill their own Dream Trawler and Elspeth Conquers Death can't remove the Giant Killer. So they just end up sitting there with their Dream Trawler on the field and you get to keep trying to progress your game plan, try to knock some cards out of their hand, try to just make them miserable. Which, let's talk about that for a moment, because I think that that's one of the underrated answers to Dream Trawler in the format is tapping. And I learned this actually all the way back when I was playing that mono blue deck that we were talking about last time we chatted. And I learned that Thassa is just a surprisingly reliable answer to Dream Trawler. And Gadwick. And and Gadwick, yep, yep, exactly. And I think Giant Killer is an even more efficient because that only costs one, is that right? That's yep. right. So, I mean, one mana, basically eliminate your Dream Trawler each turn is 
a pretty solid thing to get out of your little one-drop creature, I think. And, you know, that card, I I just have not been seeing that card as much as I think it deserves to be played. I mean, that card can just, it can take out one of your opponent's big threats in the Jeskai Fires deck. I mean, that could easily take out an Annex, right? Or just some other kind of problem threat in, in the red deck. I just think that there's a surprising number of applications for that little dude. And I think it definitely deserves consideration in any sideboard in, in a white deck. As long as it, as long as it's solving a problem that you need help solving, right? As long as big creatures are legitimately a threat to you, then why not? What, what are you really missing out on? The, the adventure creatures have proven like two spells, one card. It's, it's a two for one. Yeah. You've already got a two for one. So any place where you can make both sides of the card relevant, you have a pretty powerful card already. Yeah. I agree. Well, this deck sounds really fun now. So, okay, so people need to be a patron of yours in order to get access to it? Oh, no, no. After I worked on it for a while, I um, I made a video of it on YouTube. That video didn't go as well as I hoped, uh, to be honest. It's, it's better than I think even the video showed, but I also streamed with it a bunch. That was really fun. And the article on Cool Stuff Inc. is there for free. The video's up for free. Um, you don't have to be a patron to get my lists. It's just there's some extra video content, and it gives you direct access to, like, you can DM me for opinions, which is something I don't do with everybody because it got overwhelming over the last year of making videos. So. Right. Cool. Well, that's that's a good little plug. If you want to be able to bend the ear of Covert Go Blue, then you can go ahead and swing by his Patreon. And we'll uh, let's put a link to either your article or your deck list to that red deck in the show notes. So check out the show notes if you want to learn more about that. I wanted to talk about Tima. I have been really enjoying just the the general color combination of Tima in this format. I think it presents a lot of options outside of just Reclamation. Yeah, so name them. Go down the list. Okay, so... One of the things that I've been enjoying to do, and I think that this is a riff on a theme that you actually explored as well, is the Underworld Breach Thassa Self Mill combo. Oh, God. I just, yeah, I just worked on that last yeah, week. Yeah. So, go, go do it. <laughs> so, I ran into a deck on the ladder, which annihilated me, by the way. And I think it was, I, I don't know how many permutations of this deck that you have run. But the one that I ran into was actually playing, uh, what's that Titans card? Binding, Binding of, the, of Titans? the Titans, right? So it was this deck that was, it was running Binding of the Titans. It had at least one copy of Tamiyo. It was running your usual self-mill package of your Merfolk Secret Keepers with your Drowned Secrets. Of course, it was running Underworld Breach. And Oro as well. And this is probably the best. Like, Oro is amazing in this deck because you're just consistently, like, by turn four, you've already milled X number of cards in your deck and you're just slamming Oro. Oro keeps coming back. I've had these games. It's funny, actually. For some reason, Arena really loves pairing me against Stompy decks whenever I play this on Arena. And so... What? I didn't know those were still on Arena. Uh, right? <laughs> People still think the Questing Beast is a good card, I guess. And I would have these matchups, or I played against a Sultai deck, where, like, every turn they would cast a spell and remove Oro, 
And every turn I would just return it. And I think I, I brought Oro back like six times or something because I just had so much mill going on. But so this deck is, it's pretty simple the way it plays out. You basically self-mill aggressively and the object is just to mill away your whole deck and then slam a Thassa's Oracle and win the game that way. And if that sounds like a bit of an unwieldy thing to do, I tell you what, getting down your Underworld Breach and going off in one big turn and then slamming your Thassa's Oracle is actually quite satisfying. And I'm not going to say this is a tier one deck, but it has felt surprisingly viable. It's not been as much of a meme as I originally thought it would be. So I've been having some fun with that deck. I definitely don't think that I'm running the most tuned list, so I'd like to keep messing around with it. But I do think that some version of this deck could be, if not tier one, then maybe like 1.5, something like that. How have you been feeling running a deck like this? So the YouTube video I made with this, I got the seven wins in the standard event, which was very nice. See, there you go. And I didn't expect it. And then on la- I played it on ladder a bit for Twitch, had a very bad day. I played against red decks a number of times. It seemed like I was always on the draw, never had Uro and never had Unsummoned to hit the Embercleave turn. Yeah. So I don't know if I was running cold or what, but this deck is really exciting. Let me ask, do you run the combo with Kiora and Lotus Field? I have not. And one of the main reasons for that is... I explored Kiara Lotus Field hard. I mean, decks built around that have probably gotten more airtime in like my brewer's basement than just about anything else. So there was another deck that I was having fun with, which was inspired by a a Jeff Hoagland stream that I watched. He was playing this really spicy deck with Kiara Lotus Field, Kiara Bests the Sea God, and he was running Bant and he was playing Brought Back. So he was doing all this silly stuff where he'd like play Lotus Field, sack two lands, and then cast Brought Back to bring them back. And that deck was really fun. Not particularly great because it turns out that Kiara Best the Sea God, as powerful as that card is, it doesn't really have much potential in standard at the moment. To cut a long story short, I have played a lot with that combination of cards. And to be honest, I was a little bit tired of it. But tell me about how it works in this particular deck. Sure. So what you do, of course, is you get an Underworld Breach and you need at least one Drowned Secrets and a pretty sizable graveyard already or two Drowned Secrets and a Lotus Field on the battlefield, a Kiora on the battlefield, a Kiora in the graveyard. So what you can do is you tap your Lotus Field for three green or three blue. You untap it with Kiora. You use the mana that you generated to cast Kiora from the graveyard. Oh, there you go. Exiling three cards. The Drowned Secrets triggers. You mill yourself two. If you have two Drowned Secrets, you mill yourself four. You play the other Kiora, which Legend rules the first Kiora. You use the new Kiora to untap Lotus Field. Tap it for mana. Cast the Kiora that just went to your graveyard from the Legend rule. Rinse, repeat, so you completely empty your deck with that setup, and it's not that hard to get to. Really, having a Drown Secrets in play, a Lotus Field in play, a Kiora in play, and a Kiora in the graveyard sets you up for that when you pull the Breach. So it sounds like a lot more and a lot harder than it is, but it wasn't hard to stitch together. Um, not not even close. So yeah, if you, if you have two Drown Secrets, then that's an infinite combo, right? 
it's an it it is an infinite because your deck isn't infinite. But sure, you could right. you could do it as much as you want. You, you can do it until you are out of grade. Get here. all the way through your deck and you can slam your your Thassa's Oracle. Yep. So that that's pretty sweet, actually. I didn't think about that particular interaction with Underworld Breach. So this is one of the amazing things about Underworld Breach, which I don't think it just didn't really click for me until I played with it, that the only cards you exile with Underworld Breach are just any cards that you exile to pay the escape cost. Yeah, not the card itself, right? Exactly. That, I, so same if thing, man. If there's one card, like, for example, if you just want to cast Merfolk Secret Keeper, you know, if you want to cast the mill side of that card five times, you can do that, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the things that makes the card so busted. I just assumed because cards like this in the past have always had that stipulation that once you cast a card again from the graveyard, you have to exile it. So that really does, I don't know, that is one of the things that makes that card more exciting for me. And it's funny, actually, because I'm, yeah, I'm thinking about this list that you were telling me about, and this is almost like as close to the Pioneer Breach deck as you can get in Standard, right? Right. I do want to shout out really quick, uh, Danny T. Law is a person getting started in streaming, and he posted, he's also one of my patrons, he posted the list uh, that was the first I saw of the combo. I don't know if there was somebody before that, but I just want to give him a shout out. Here. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I should definitely try that when I get my stamina back up for slamming more Kiaras and Lotuses. I'll tell you what, like Lotus is such a fickle card to play with. Like you have these games where you just go off with it and it feels amazing. And then you have these other games where, like, you have an opening hand, which is one land, two lotuses. Uh-huh. Or, you know, maybe you keep a sketchy hand and you're like, come on, land, come on, land, come on, land. And then you draw a lotus and you just want to auto-concede on the spot. So, oh, you can. It's one of the great things about Arena. There's a red button that counters all things of sadness on the stack and gets you to a new game. <laughs> Counter target sadness you lose yep. the game. <laughs> yeah. I, I like to think of it as a strategic retreat. I, I don't use the you lose the game terminology. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I like that. It's a breather. Just call it a breather, you know? There you go. Well, we're about to wrap it up here. The end always comes too soon when I have you on the show, my friend. It really does. I can't believe how much time... I feel like we could talk forever. Seriously. It really flies by. Seriously. Before we go, you've just, you've been recognizing an important milestone in your magic life. So I just wanted to give us a little bit of time to talk about that and highlight that. So what, what's been going on for you? So I, sometime around early part of last year, I started taking my YouTubing seriously and a big commitment for that was daily uploads which at the time uh i was really nervous if i could make it work and i always said i would celebrate if i ever hit a year and the weird thing is i went past it and i didn't even catch it for a few weeks but i'm actually now uh by the time that people listen to this will be over 382 consecutive days with a new youtube magic the gathering video featuring a different deck Every single day. And all, all original content, none of it is also my Twitch streams. I also stream on Twitch, but I keep the content separate and unique. So I was 
I've just been kind of asking people on social media and such. I'm like, is is there anybody else who has done um, the streak to go over 365 days, 382 plus days now without missing a, a YouTube video upload with a different Magic the Gathering deck every day? And I, I'm, I suspect it's pretty unique because there are some pretty amazing YouTubers and they're very committed and... I still know that they have to take times off when they go compete in events. And I know that they try different games and things like that. And over the last year, despite uh, things like two weeks in Europe, holidays, internet outages, and all kinds of other things, ups and downs in my life, for sure, um, it the, the streak stayed intact since February 6th of 2019. So I just wanted to kind of see if anybody else was doing that. And I also find it a lot to talk about content creation. You might know this can be lonely if you let it be lonely where nobody really knows what you go through, but you, and I, I, I hear from a lot of content creators who want to get into content. And I thought it might be fun to talk about like just what that kind of consistency does for people and where it gets people to be. So I don't know. It might be a longer conversation, but I'm just, I, I wanted to talk about it a little bit on the podcast and, and, and just get it out there a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, congratulations. That is a huge achievement as somebody who releases. So I actually do two podcasts right now. Uh, my other one is like a science philosophy general interest show, which releases roughly every two to three weeks. That's called Listening Glass. Uh, you can check check that out if if any of y'all are interested in that kind of thing. But but yeah, I mean, it's like I put out a one hour ish podcast every week, and that's plenty. I mean, that is plenty of workload for a content creator. And so I can only imagine putting out a video every single day without fail. I mean, that is a it's a monumental achievement. And I think. If, if you listening out there have never gone through the process of like coming up with an idea and then recording a video and then uploading it to YouTube and, you know, maybe making a cover image and doing all that kind of stuff and especially to like improve and then maintain the quality of that over time. It's no small thing, you know, it's not like, like I know that you don't just like, you don't just like fire up OBS hit play, chill on arena for 45 minutes, upload it to YouTube and then like peace, right? Like th there's a lot more that goes into it. So I think that that it, it like the achievement in that can't be overstated, I think. Uh, thank you. Um, but yeah, that, that was the origins, like what you just talked about the 45 minutes in peace. That was the origins of the channel a right. very, very long time ago. Yeah. But the more you get into that world and learn about what, people are looking for on YouTube, which I think a lot of people never bother to learn much about their own audience, to be honest. Um, the more you learn of the kind of experience that they're looking for in a video, and it's, it becomes, you kind of develop a formula. And then once you develop your formula and you've done it and people love it, now you have to innovate on the formula. Right. It's not enough to repeat it. Other people will come along that do the same thing but better or the same thing with a twist or the same thing with more engagement or the same thing with a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever it you is, figured me people, out. people will come at you, um, not necessarily at you, but they'll, they'll realize what works, right? Yeah. Because you did 
you don't have exclusive rights to what works. Other people will realize what works. So after you have the formula, you have to innovate on your own formula. You have to surprise people. You have to delight people. Um, the, you gave me the wrestling intro. It was really hard for me not to go into a tangent about my new character where I play heel CGB, which is um, I play like the spikiest meta decks and I'm cocky and confident and I emote a lot and I talk smack the whole time. Nice. And that's the kind of thing if I did that early, people would just, they still say this sometimes, but they would say I'm arrogant, they would say I'm smug and they would tune out, right? right. But now people that have this relationship with me for over a year, these viewers, they see me trying something different and having fun with it. It it's it's really it's it's a good experience. Everybody has a good time, uh, I think. Um, so, uh, like things like that. It's once you once you have success, you basically have to keep challenging yourself to figure out how to keep bringing people more and keep it going. And doing that for any period of time, doing that for a few months is hard. Doing it for a year is epic, and you know it's all part of the fun. So, uh, hopefully, you guys will check out the YouTube. We're at about forty seven thousand subscribers i started this journey at just under a thousand i believe so um tremendous growth over the last year and we have a deal right now if we hit fifty thousand subscribers i will do a whole week of jank just jank <laughs> just just nonsense just the, the weirdest things if you want to see me cast whatever the eight mana minotaur card is or you want to see how many uh, triggers we can get off Sphinx Mindbender and Mirror March. That's the one that mills 10 cards when it enters the battlefield, by the way. Um, so like, that's what we're going for. 50,000 subs, jank week. It, it awaits. So come on over, hit the subscribe button. I'd appreciate it. You heard the man. <laughs> we'll include links, like I said, in the show notes. So go and show CGB some love because I want to see that week of jank. I'm uh, I'm trying to think about what horrible contortions I might want to put you through. <laughs> Please no. Please no. <laughs> I the, the first thing that came to my mind was like uh was like giant tribal running both the titans and then you know like the wrath and all that kind of stuff. That would be, I think that would be a fun deck to explore. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> Bring it on. Bring it all. Bring all of your most evil jank. Bring it. it on. All right. Awesome. Covert Go Blue. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Let's just reiterate, where can people find you in general across the internet? Yeah. What I always say about this is completely unprofessional, but it's true. Uh, if, you go if you Google Covert, not Convert, Covert Go Blue, one word, Covert Go Blue, if you Google that, you should find everything you need. Um, Twitter, YouTube is probably the most popular. Twitch, Twitter, YouTube, Twitch. And those are, if you want to connect with me, you can DM me on Twitter. But every single, every single video that I have on YouTube should have a Discord link in the description. That Discord is totally free. We've got over 3,000 people in there that hang out and talk about magic. Join the Discord and you can DM me there. It is the best way to just get and stay in touch with me if you want to. And... Uh, yeah, you can also check out the Patreon if you want extra benefits. If you want me to help work work out your deck, work on a deck or idea with you, things like that. Tiers start as low as only $2. So um, check that out. And that's that's me. That's CGB. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week. And everyone, go subscribe right now. I'm going to, I mean, I think I already have, but I'm going to go do it again. 
So <laughs> thank you very much, my man, and good luck out there in the matter. Yeah, thanks a lot. Love the podcast. And before I head out here, I just wanted to thank you again, the listener, for joining me for another week of this show. It's one of the favorite things that I do in my life, and I hope that it has brought you some amount of joy in your day as well. Let's be real, a lot of us want to be playing magic when we are working or out in the car or doing something we would rather not be doing. And it's nice to just be able to listen to some content and think about this game when you can't actually be flipping the cards. So once again, please subscribe, please follow on Twitter, please like, please leave a review on iTunes, even just click those five stars. That's all you have to do. And I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much for your support. It's a pleasure bringing you the show and I will look forward to next week. Dream.